You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. That's the thumbs up, which means that you, friend, are listening to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Lewis Kornfeld. My guest today, the incomparable Christian Pollock. Christian. Hi. How's it going, man? Good. Thanks. How are you? For being here. I'm good. Thanks. You pronounced it Pollock. It's Pollock. I know. <laughs> That's not the first time I've done it, too. It's a weird, do you get this where, like, I know someone's name, but then the second I know I'm being recorded, there's, like, a yeah. little, like, sensor that kicks into your throat as soon as you say it that makes you say the wrong version of the name? Yeah. It's it's the self-conscious hiccup for no reason whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, but everybody my whole life has pronounced it Pollock. I apologize. So, right no, at the end. Please. Right at the get-go. No, please. Christian, you're, you're an experienced <laughs> actor. You're an experienced improviser. Tell me, why is it that we can stand in front of 200 or 300 people, no problem, have access to all these wonderful things in our mind, no problem, and then you get on a microphone and like a goddamn lunatic, your throat closes up and you mispronounce the names of people who you've known for years. Because there's something about the focus of anything being immediate and centered on you. I think that that's like, well, what? Oh, okay. I, I have to go. Hmm. Oh, okay. Whereas like, I think with what we do, there's at least the, the kind of easing into the water a little bit with a group where you might not be in the first scene or there, there's at least time to adjust to the circumstances mentally mm -hmm. to get all that like, oh, it's time to go out of the way, mm -hmm. you know, backstage or, excuse me, um, during warmups, whatever it may be. Whereas this is like, sit down and do it. Uh, be entertaining. Be engaging. <laughs> uh, be uh, proficient. Be execute well. You know, all these things. You're like, I just can't be how I'm being right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can, you can be how you're being right now. If you allow it, that's, that's a lot of the stuff that I've been working on in life and in, and in improv is, you know, not having any ulterior motive mm -hmm. for influencing, uh, influencing an outcome to be what I want it to be. And just accepting that, I can participate in whatever this is, a conversation with you, an improv scene, uh, picking up my kid from school, whatever moment I'm in, I just have to be in that moment and do, and do what it is that's required at that moment. Mm -hmm. So if it's 7.30 on a Saturday night, it's commit to this character right now. If it's 7.30 on a Monday morning, it's get cereal and... <laughs> dressed and off to school. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I don't like, I don't like the uh, focus of um, expectation. Does that make sense? Like, okay, camera's good. Lights, roll sound, mm -hmm. everybody good and action. Mm -hmm. All that moment of that is like, no, I just, I just want to do it. I, just want, <laughs> I want to just do it. None of the other stuff. Yeah. Uh, because that just means 
that means there's a right and a wrong to it, or I could fail. And that puts me too much in a space to not be able to execute anything. That reminds me of an interview I heard TJ Jagodowski give one time. Uh, you know about his vertigo problems? Uh, now that you say it, but not really. He has like a weird undiagnosed vertigo illness that only creeps up in like very specific situations, including when he's doing scripted theater. So he avoids doing scripted theater entirely. Okay. It like happened for the first time when he was in the middle of a second city show and he had to be like excused from the show where like everything will turn into everything turns upside down and goes into a pinpoint. And he was talking in the interview about how, it never seems to happen when he's improvising and he thinks the reason is because when you're acting the next, the, your response to whatever just happened, there's one correct response and an infinity of incorrect responses. And there's something about the pressure of that, that just turns his world upside down, Mm -hmm. which I, uh, that's what that made me think of. I think that that was the beginning of improv for me was, just what you just um, articulated that there was only one right way to do this um, and an infinite number of wrong ways. Mm -hmm. And I was inevitably never going to have the odds in my favor to choose the right one. So the, uh, (laughs) the overwhelming um, guarantee of failure was like, well, why even bother? What? Like I can't, I don't know how to do this at all. Uh, and then, you know, when it was finally, when I was finally given permission by somebody to just do it the way I was doing it and that there was to not worry about the right and the wrong, just do it. Just, just do what, what your instinct is to do. Then things started to make more sense and I could, I could accelerate more. I could take more risks. What were you doing before you were improvising? What, how, how'd you get started? Uh, so I went to Emerson college in Boston for, uh, communications and, uh, my track was TV production. Most kids went there for film. Also a lot of, um, uh, performing, um, musical theater was a big program there. Um, so that was, I had done plays in high school, but I had, um, tried to kind of play it safe and go on a track that was parallel Mm -hmm. to what I had an instinct to do and say, well, I'll be involved in entertainment somehow, some way I'll figure out how to write or produce or whatever. Um, and I, you know, went through school and had a great time and, and ended up in LA and, uh, I had met, uh, (laughs) Anthony and Tamanik and I were in the same, uh, program freshman year called the freshman academic studies program, which was basically for smart kids who didn't apply themselves. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so they could tell uh, from testing or whatever that you were okay, but your grades and your activities didn't reflect that. So they put you in this very specific uh, program, which was great because they had these facilitators. Uh, one guy, Dr. Anthony Bashir, who would really take an interest in you. And, and he like, he was not a father figure, but some sort of, uh, paternal representative. Right. And, and he would make sure that you were going to class and doing all the things you were supposed to do. So I met Anthony there and in LA, uh, you did a semester, you did your final semester in LA to do an internship. And we were out there at the same time and we became friends. And then, uh, 
moved to LA after graduation and continued to be friends. And he was the one who introduced me to the idea of like formal improv that, um, <coughs> excuse me, that like the kind of, um, the kind of messing around that we would just do hanging out that you could, you could put that into a, you could put that on stage mm -hmm. and that people had been doing that for a long time. But for whatever reason, I was never really exposed to the idea of formal improv before that. Um, so that was in like 99 and I knew I didn't like LA a lot and I knew I didn't like the, the industry and all the kind of stereotypes about it that do come up. Like who do you work for? Uh, where do you live? What do you drive? All, all that kind of like materialism uh, was I wasn't jiving with that at all. How, how deep is your pool? <laughs> 11 feet. You got, what, you got an 11 footer? 11 feet of pure crystal. Wow. 11 uh, feet, Santa Barbara. <laughs> nice. Yeah. How was your uh, pool in the valley? Oh, <laughs> I can't make it out there. Too hot. The valley gets too hot. Um, I don't cross Coldwater Canyon. Um, the only shit I know about, about LA is like, <laughs> Should have cobbled together watching like the people versus OJ Simpson or yeah. whatever. It's like, oh, it's, the Valley. It's enough. Yeah. You got enough. Um, so it, that was a very foreign place to me. And I was at, at this kind of crossroads with being true to myself and saying, you know, even at that age, I think it was 23 or 24, like you get one shot at what you want to be in life and, and you should follow that. So I wanted to pursue comedy and writing and things like that. And I could either do it there. I could have stayed there or I was, um, thinking about moving back east to New York. And I ended up doing that in uh, the fall of 99. And then Anthony moved back like a couple months later. He also moved to New York and we ended up living together and then taking classes at this place called Gotham City Improv, which I'm not sure if they are still in existence or not. But that was uh, 2000. And we went through the levels there and got on their, their, um, uh, their house team. Uh, they just had one house team. And, um, and then uh, we both started taking classes at UCB around the same time. So that's, the, you know, 2001, somewhere in there. It was after September 11th. I remember that. Um, and went through the levels there. And then, you know, he was, he was really progressing um, with sort of acumen. Like you could tell he, he, he just knew what he was doing and he could get it. And I was struggling a lot more um, because it was much more new to me. He had done it in high school and throughout college as well. So um, I got to a level where I always use this example as this was my breaking point with my initial run was I was in this, um, uh, it was a movie class and it was taught by um, Seth Morris and um, Peter Husky. Brian Husky. Brian Husky. And um, who's the third one? Doesn't matter. Dina Mo? Yeah, could be. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And in that class was like Curtis Gwynn and John Gemberling and Neil Casey and Anthony, um, uh, Chris Gethard, me, and like a handful of other people. And it was like an invite class. And <laughs> I just remember first getting the invite and being like, Oh yeah, good. I'm, 
I'm making some progress or I'm, I'm getting some kind of validation here. And then being in the class and being like, oh my God, these guys are like lightning. Mm-hmm. I can't, I'm, I'm terrible at this. <laughs> There's no way I can keep up. And I was making bad moves in class and I was, I was really just at a point where, and I wasn't getting, I was getting like callbacks for Hill teams, but not getting on and all the typical stuff that, that everybody goes through. And I remember he got on a team and I didn't. And that was my breaking point. I was like, I can't, uh, I can't give you any more money. I can't take any more classes. I can't audition again. Fuck all this. I'm going to go and do stand up." Mm-hmm. And I went and did that for like two or three years. Um, and that was a really good experience for me too. And it was kind of a striking out on my own and seeing what I could do on my own. Um, and I got a lot out of it. Uh, but <laughs> eventually I heard that Armando was teaching a class and I'd heard his name for years, but didn't know who he was. And, uh, I heard he was teaching a class at this new theater and I went over and I took, um, instant brilliance with him. And that was the first time where somebody told me like, it's okay. Excuse me. You're doing okay. Mm-hmm. Like not everything's brilliant, obviously, but the way you do it, your instinct to, to do what you do is totally valid. And I was like, Oh, Okay, then let's get to work. And then it just kind of opened up and, and I was able to try more, do more, be more myself. Um, and it, it sort of progressed from there. I, I had a very similar experience with Armando and kind of like uh, encountered him at my like turning point where I was starting to get disenchanted and it, and it was almost exactly the same thing. It was, it was being told like, you're doing fine. Yeah. It was just hearing it from someone that you respect saying, trust your gut. It, you're making the right move. Yeah. And it's a really simple thing, but, and why we need it. I don't know either Mm -hmm. why we can't just listen to the gut the whole way along. I don't know, but it's clearly a human thing to, to not to doubt yourself, to go through moments of, uh, you know, being lost and uh, being in despair uh, and just needing somebody to be like, no, you're, you're okay. Yeah. And it's literally that simple, that intonation, that whatever is like, no, you're all right. And you go, Oh, okay. The world's not crushing me. I always felt with Armando's classes that it, it re- wasn't really about what he was doing in the class so much as just kind of how he was in the room mm-hmm. and not everybody took to that. But I mean, I took to him immediately. I needed that a lot. That sort of like laid back, like get up after a scene out of the chair and be like, uh, yeah, so, okay, let's uh, go back to yeah. this moment, yeah. and, you know, and like just, you know, real, no like judgment behind it. No, yeah. like, you know, looking down at the floor for a long time or, you know, a heavy sigh before you give a note or, you know, like that type of stuff that I had been, that I had experienced in different places. Um, so uh yeah that was that was clearly very influential in me kind of deciding to stay and pursue it more it just gets me thinking about um like you know i've heard stories of like dell back in the day and and this kind of like chicago experiences a little bit with some of the older teachers where like you know it'll be you improvise for 10 minutes and then they're being yelled at for two hours about Mm -hmm. all kinds of crazy shit and uh, I don't think I'd be able to take it. And part of it is, I, I think, like, 
you know, that like sports thing that you develop of like how to kind of like rise to the occasion and, and, and be yourself in front of a crowd and, and, and be competitive, be competitive with yourself and be competitive, not against your own teammates, but competitive with you're staying nose to nose with your teammates and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I, I fold like a house of cards in that situation <laughs> and I hate it. I hate it. It, it, you know, it, it totally is the thing. If I step into a room and it's like the six, it's death by Ruru is in that room improvising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't improvise. It, like that part of me just like, it's like a door slam shut. I can't open it again until I'm out of that situation. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, I am starting to be able to unveil some of that stuff in my own life, in my own um, thinking and about how, Almost all of what we do is just perspective, your perspective on it. And we see this intimidating thing standing in front of us, whether it's, you know, a literal football team full of giant 300 pound men or, or, uh, you know, a room full of scholars or a room full of very, very talented and sharp witted comedians. Um, we think how, how I can't measure up to this. I'm not supposed to be here. And the trick of it is to me is, is again, and I'm, <laughs> I'm probably going to say this too many times, but to just participate, mm-hmm. to just say, if I'm here, if I'm in the room, then that's all I need to, you know, that's all I have in my um, control. So I might as well just participate. And if I can try to remove a lot of my ego and panic sensors that are going off right now, what do I really want to do? Well, I'm, I want to have fun in this in this way that I, that I do it. If they don't accept that or they don't appreciate that, then I, I also don't have control over that. In other words, like what you think of me is none of my business. Like mm-hmm. I can only do this. So if you're going to judge me, go ahead, but I can't, <laughs> I, I don't know another way to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and then your work tends to be of that mindset and like kind of free and easy and, and, pliable and certainly there's probably a lot of gems in there and a lot of give and take and a lot of good listening and a lot you know Mm -hmm. things that we might take for granted as not being astoundingly clever or sharp you know um but are valuable uh i am given the note all the time i'm i steal it from keith johnstone's books but you know your what you think of as being very boring is probably very interesting to someone watching you. Yeah. What you think of as being a completely unoriginal response is probably the single most original response you could give to something. Yeah. It's hard when you're feeling that thing, when that door's shutting in your mind or you're, you're feeling, I guess, you know, you know what I guess it is for me, it's just like a, a feeling of embarrassment of like, yeah, kind of progressively learning in life how to better cope with feeling embarrassed and why is the embarrassment there and the fact that you can't control it or eradicate it? Say, I don't even like that I am embarrassed. I don't like that that feeling is in me right now. Yep. And instead kind of go, okay, I'm embarrassed. That's a natural human reaction to potential judgment, pain, failure, whatever. Uh, let me just allow that to be. Okay, embarrassment, you're allowed to be here too but I still got to do this other thing. Okay. So it's kind of like dragging a toddler to the grocery store in the most, you know, um, in the easiest way possible. And my experience has been to just kind of explain it calmly and then do it. Mm. (laughs) 
And the same thing for the emotions that are jostling around in my mind. It's like, okay, guys, I get why you're all reacting the way you are, but we still have to go do this scene, okay? So let's go do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know, does uh, how does having a having a kid change your perspective on that kind of stuff? Because it it you know it seems to me that when that embarrassment creeps up, not to sound like a 60s psychiatry guy but you know it's the inner child yeah coming up to the surface and 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 feeling hijacking the the driver's seat and you know what i mean like how does it change things for you when you actually have a kid and and have to like do you talk to yourself better having a kid to talk to and oh yeah so no um what's interesting is i think having a kid It makes you want all the right things. It makes you want to be able to, I remember I was working at this job that was kind of killing me um, at around the time that he was born, but I was getting, you know, paid a a pretty decent salary and I had benefits and all these things that allowed him to even be born, you know? Um, But I was thinking, I remember just before he was born, like going to work every day and thinking like, I got to show him better than this. I got to show him like, better than a guy resentfully trudging off to a job that he kind of hates, but has to do. Um, and then coming back and being angry about having had to do that day mm-hmm. in this cycle of just kind of existing, but not living. I've got to show him better than that. What do I do? So I, I quit my job and I cashed in my 401k and I said, I'm really going to try to give this a go acting. I'm really going to try to, Whatever means I have, whatever contacts I have, I'm really I'm gonna try to push as hard as I can. Um, and I got a voiceover agent, and I had a couple other um, opportunities to like do this sketch thing that never ended up coming to fruition, but was happening around that time. And enough irons in the fire that I thought that was a realistic decision to make, and not me sort of just kind of being an idiot and being like, I'm just gonna go be an actor now. <laughs> And, and and I was like, all right, let's let's go. And I did make some progress, but eventually I needed to go back to driving, which is what I left to to um, supplement everything. And then eventually I couldn't sustain that either, and I was back in this cycle of, you know, working this job that I hated and not really having any energy going on with acting. And then again, you know, wanting to show Jack that there you know, while life is not easy, you got to pursue the stuff that you, that your gut is telling you to pursue and you've got to fight through some, some adversity and stuff like that. But I was only getting angrier and angrier and I was only being more and more not able to deal with my reality. So I had this want of like wanting to show him the best version of myself and kind of at the same time sliding down this hill and becoming the worst version of myself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I started going to some meetings and stuff and, and I got to a point where my life was, I, <laughs> I wasn't, I've never been suicidal or anything like that, but I, I could see checking out as an option. I could see like why people get sick of living. Mm-hmm. I could see like, I've seen this movie. I've had this meal. I've had all the sex I'm going to like, all you know, all these things running through your mind where you're like, eh, what's good about it anymore what's now all i'm gonna 
hit pause and say, I'm aware of my son. I would never look at that gift and, and throw that away. That's not something I could ever do. And I could never, I would also never put him in a position to have to like live a life tainted by anything like that. So it was never a very close reality for me. But again, I, be, I began to identify with the, this is fucking whatever, man. I'll just go to work again, work another fucking 15, 16 hours driving rich people around and do it again tomorrow. And that's what I'm going to be. Try to get that kind of like tone to me and that kind of resentful outlook on the world. And then, like I said, I started going to some meetings and uh, that helped change my perspective. And then I had this kind of like aha moment where I was in one of these meetings and I was waiting for it to begin. And I looked up and it was this, this very famous actor who we all know. Um, and I looked up and then I looked up at the ceiling and I kind of had this realization. I go, now this person um, has everything I think I want. And we're still sitting here at the same time waiting for this meeting to start. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the right place. And it doesn't matter what I have anymore. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter what credits I have or what validation I have for my professional life. None of it matters. I've got to feel okay. And then I started to be able to show that to Jack. So there's a 17-minute answer to your, <laughs> to your original question. That's a good answer. <laughs> I, that's, you know, it's important to, to acknowledge that. I mean, you know, everybody has like bad days or bad weeks. Right. But when, when you're at that point where like, there's nothing new about life anymore, mm -hmm. everything has that kind of like gray exactly quality the, to it. The patina of like everything has that film over it. It, it it's important it, by turning your back on that and, and not acknowledging it and, and just kind of accepting it. Even if you're doing it on somebody else's behalf, you, you really end up not helping them at all because like it's the unconscious model that you set for somebody, for a kid. That's the thing that you pick up on. I think about that a lot of, of like the way I picked up a lot of my dad's behavior. I picked up a lot of the opposite of what my dad told me. Yeah. I just picked up, a lot of how my dad felt. Exactly. That's what you communicate to people. And, and it's important to like acknowledge when you're feeling that. And if it's a persistent thing that like, all right, there's a blockage somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. There was a point where, um, I had done everything I could think to do about solving my problem. And my problem is just literally at this point, having this awareness to be so profoundly thankful for my wife and my son that like I have a real relationship with my wife. I love her. She loves me. It's real, right? I got that right in my mind. Like check it off the list. I got that right. Now I'm not saying that your relationships are guaranteed or whatever, but I'm just saying that like I didn't do anything weird in that regard or like marry somebody for this reason or that. I, I married my wife because I loved her and she loved me and we wanted to, you know, have a real partnership. And then we had a kid and that was the most amazing thing ever. Um, but then as a man, not being able to support that mm -hmm. and say like, we're in this, we're in this one bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side, which we can't, we're kind of stuck. We can't really afford to move in the city and she works in the city and we can only go so far outside and to commute and who's going to be home after school. And you, you 
you start to face all these challenges and go, and I don't even, I couldn't even pay for what we need uh, on what I make. And I'm not even, and I'm making even less and like I'm going in the wrong direction. So that starts to feel very overwhelming. Like I can't solve this problem. I cannot get my family where we need to be based on what it is that I think I'm good at and, and, you know, the opportunity to do that in a way that pays. Um, and, and whatever that may be, whether that's performing or writing or, or, I, I, you know, a variety of other things potentially, but I can't find any one of them. So what do I do with that? And then, you know, you kind of just learn that in life, the best thing you can do <laughs> to me is just give over to it and accept that it's overwhelming right now if you think about all of it, but I've just got to get through today mm-hmm. doing whatever I have to do today and trusting that there is kind of like maybe not a preset path laid out for you, but you know, a series of choices that you still have yet to make that could lead to easier times or you no. Know. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of this thing I read. Um, you read the book, the, the, uh, the, the dude and the Zen master. No. So it, it's a, a transcription of uh, conversations between uh, a Zen, an American Zen teacher named Bernie Glassman and Jeff Bridges. And uh, so they use the dude and, and Big Lebowski as like the the starting point to just kind of talk about life. And it's it, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But they talk a lot about acting and, and they talk a lot about uh, philosophy and they talk about just kind of like getting through day-to-day life. And, and it's worth a read. But um, – one of the things that they were talking about, like Zen and and Jeff Bridges was talking about how, you know, he could put himself into this very like Zen place and be very relaxed and very calm. And then all it takes is one thing to completely mm-hmm. freak him out Yeah, and how, how, you know, tough it is to deal with that. And, and this guy, Bernie Glassman said that it, it's not about getting things right or being having your life be perfect or being serene regardless of the circumstances mm-hmm. is like the, the practice of Zen is more just like putting like more and more sand in the bottom of one of those, like, uh, like what do you, what do you call those things? Not the rock'em sock'em robots, but like the, you know, oh, like the, the, the you know, punching balloons, yeah, the punching like, balloons yeah. right. Putting like more and more sand in the base of yeah. that. So stuff still knocks you over, but the more your attitude is like refined to cope, mm-hmm. the quicker you come back up again and and i think that part of it you're right like sometimes all you can do is like let go and and fall eventually i think you have to it's it's my experience that i again i tried to do everything i could to dig myself out to look in this direction to try to do more of that to try to change my attitude to be this and and none of it without the help of you know uh you know people around me and the world around me was really making any difference. Um, and then I, I also kind of discovered that uh, helping other people, even in very small ways is, is really kind of starting to be more of a need for me in my life mm-hmm. where um, I haven't ever put uh, a focus on that beyond uh, Jack, you know, another person's needs or it was always, and and to me, like, I, I'm kind of embarrassed by it, but 
it was pretty selfish. Like, and we all are, we're, we're concerned with ourselves, with our lives, with how our lives are going, but there has to be more than that too. Mm. Uh, so you can be concerned with your own life and how it's going and still, uh, you know, I make it a point to give away change and do stupid little things like that, but I just make it a point to like dig into my pocket and give it away just to, for the act of giving something away. Um, and I try to do that more and more and more. And, and, and in doing that, I'm kind of seeing new, new directions to go in and new, new interests and new, You know, if you think about it, right, like, just like having a good marriage and having a good relationship with your kid, having the, the capacity to, to love other people and to accept love from other people is, um, huge. Like, I think back, like, I think of like my family history and you go back like two generations, like not, People mm-hmm. who I knew, yeah, who were like that was not a part of their life at all. A balanced relationship. I mean, you just like people just abused each other yeah. horribly as accepted as accepted. course of action. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, something's gone right, right. If if that kink has been worked out of the system, I was having a conversation with my mom not too long ago where we were like, it was one of those like deep, heavy ones where you kind of are like looking backwards and and like apologizing to each other for mm-hmm. like, you know, the shit that you said and whatnot. And uh, like it, it, it came out in the conversation of like, actually, you know, like all things considered, you guys did a pretty outstanding job because I don't have a problem when it comes to the relationship department. I yeah. don't have a problem in be- feeling comfortable being myself intimately with people yeah. and accepting their intimacy in return. And it's like, there's no money attached to that. There can't be, yeah. But I mean, how big is that? How important is that? How huge? That something yeah. has gone right. If you're talking generations of of people not having that, and then somehow you're beginning to open yourself up to that. Oh, I think it's everything. I re- I really believe that. Like, and I think it, in general society, we're we're also moving towards that as being more fundamentally valuable than money and the economic system. As much as we all know that that's how the game is played, we also all know that. We have a short time here, and the, the only things that you're going to remember by the end are, are your relationships and your ability to to love and be loved and and kind of be accountable for yourself as well. You know, to say you're sorry when you make a mistake, to to not intentionally make mistakes, but to also be able to say you're sorry when you do, mm-hmm. and um, all of that stuff makes you just kind of a more open person to the experience of whatever this is. And then, you know, I think improv is to me always just been a reflection of that. Improv is like, <laughs> it's like the alternate universe you wish you could live in mm-hmm. to me. So that's always what I used it for. If I was having a shitty week and I had a show on Wednesday at eight o'clock, I would just go try to exercise some demons and be like, I wish the world was like this. Mm -hmm. I wish you could yell about these absurd things and, you know, punch the door when you feel like punching the door or, you know, talk in this stupid voice when you felt like doing that. And I can't do any of that out there. (laughs) I can only do it here for however many minutes I have a week, you know? Um, But it was also about kind of like, yeah, just reflecting back that idea that like this is important to me for whatever reason, 
Um, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it as hard as I can <laughs> because it's important to me. And other people are going to kind of judge me for it and be like, well, how's your stand-up going? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> not stand-up, improv. So how much do you pay to do something like that? Mm-hmm. You do it, you do, yeah, you don't, you do it for free. Sometimes you get a commercial or something. I don't know. Good luck. But yeah. <laughs> like, uh, okay. But you take all that and you go, I still love to do this. Yeah. So I'm going to show up and do it for that reason alone. What do you focus on? You're coaching people. What do you focus on when you're coaching them? What are you encouraging? I'm, I, I, Katie Berry was on the show last <laughs> week and she said that you had made the comment that. Did she call me Kristen? Yeah. Yeah, she did. <laughs> Unapologetic, too. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Real attitude on yeah. that one. <laughs> oh, sassy. Yeah. When she was called out on Facebook about that, too. Still nothing. <laughs> nothing. She moves in one direction. She goes forward, and that's it. Just that's legs it. kicking out in that's front of her at whatever she can connect with. Fuck it. <laughs> too Screaming short. pussy the whole way. <laughs> um, I, she, she said that you, you had... You had said the goal is to improvise as if you're in your own bathroom at home. I think so. I really believe that more and more and more. And I think I heard John Leguizamo say something similar to that. Like you're just trying to get back to the point where you're in your living room with your family or your friends and 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 instead you're doing that in front of an audience of however many people. But I think that's the truth. I think that's what we appreciate as an audience a lot too is to see a performer that's capable enough to be to not overdo it in any, in any certain direction. Yeah. Um, and, and to be comfortable with your quirks, your things that make you, you the way you like to do it. Um, and then to be able to combine that with other people's chemistry. I think that's, that's the trick to me is so much of improv, I think is kind of luck of the draw in terms of how the team gets formed and, and who gets put together with who and what kind of elements that chemistry Creates. I think, you know, so much of that is out of your control. But what is in your control, I think, is to bring 100% of yourself and to be, and to have that be pointed towards support and not any kind of self um, satisfaction, mm-hmm. which, you know, your ego gets in the way a lot of that. I think that's natural. But you want to be a, a team member and be a strong one. And if everybody does that, and everybody feels allowed to do that. It's the one thing I try to pass on that we've already spoken about, which is like, you're okay. Go ahead. Mm. Have some fun. Who told you you couldn't? Like, I, I will forever have this sort of unformed idea of some negative, like, person telling you, do it again. Do it right. Do yeah. it this way. Do it. And, and me kind of battling that person being like, shut up. Go ahead. Have some fun. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what it's about. Um, and yes, there are ways to do that, you know, efficiently and and to do that with more skill and more polish. But ultimately, it's about do you feel freedom or do you feel like there's something that's about to go wrong? Because if you feel like something's about to go wrong, I don't think you're, there's much you're going to do. Yeah. It, it you know, it, it's acting and, and, well, the acting side of it, you know, is can you be private? publicly right and and it's similar i think what you're saying with like the slight adjustment of like the acting side of it is a little bit more of like can you share your kind of uh, uh 
bedroom privacy mm-hmm. publicly, whereas the improv is a little more. Can you share your bathroom privacy publicly? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and I don't mean like no, I know sexually I'm, or yeah. or or scatologically, but but levels that, of self. Those silly, idiotic, dumb things that you do, like you find yourself for whatever reason. I have this like unconscious tick when I brush my teeth to climb these stools in my kitchen. So I'm mm-hmm. always standing in my underwear, brushing my teeth on top of a stool, mm-hmm. looking down on my kitchen. Like a cat. Like a cat. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, like you'll drive a car, sometimes you'll drive through like a whole state without realizing you've been through Delaware. Yeah. Sometimes I'll just find myself brushing my teeth, like standing on like the stove and be like, <laughs> I just, yeah, just like that. There's that like privacy where in private, there's a certain uh, weirdness that begins to come out of you. Oh my God. Like I was, uh, <laughs> I don't know what this says about me, but I was last summer taking Jack to the pool a lot. And I had the idea for a character of like just a greasy old um, kind of non PC guy who likes to sing songs like, well, there's a lot of puss down at the public pool. Come on down and get yourself some puss. And I'm like, now what? What other forty year old dad is over here at the, at the Lasker pool in Central Park, like quietly singing to himself? There's a lot of puss down at the public pool, not because there was, mind you, but just because I thought that would be a funny, uh, uh, inappropriate thing to sing about. Mm-hmm. Um, who else has that brain chemistry going on at that moment? And then can I do that? In front of other in, people, yeah. yes. And now it's it's tipped over to where I relish doing that in front of other people. Yeah, um, it's it's no longer scary to do that. It's like, can I do it? Can I do it as freely as I want to, with no fear of any kind of judgment afterwards, or even sometimes the judgment of like, I I hope I'm not fucking up this show by mm-hmm. doing this. I hope I'm not being too selfish. I hope nobody thinks I'm stepping on their toes or doing this for reasons X, Y, or Z. It really is just because I think it's fun. It really is just because I think it's fun this way. I hope nobody's mad. There's still that element of it to to it for me, as you know, among sharing the stage with other people. And I think that there should be. I think that that's healthy, unless you're playing on on like a team that's like dedicated to chaos. There's a certain amount of like respectful anarchy to right. a show, right? And I think it's like healthy to have part of yourself thinking how can I cause more of a problem up here and part of yourself being like, I hope I'm not really causing a problem for anybody. Exactly. I I think that's just a healthy improviser brain at work. Yeah. But then you got to also be careful that at least for me, um, if I go too much into that mindset, I go half in half out and I don't do much of anything. I stay somewhere around neutral. When you're, Thinking too much about uh, about what about the effect it's going to have on other people? Yeah, from the outside eye of like this is a performer worrying about his fellow performers, not a person trying to recreate mm-hmm. what this scenario would really be like. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if I totally give over, and again, I guess to use my own model, like apologize afterwards, mm-hmm. say sorry, guys. Like I, I didn't mean to bull rush that scene if i did i didn't mean to step on any toes i was just i was just going with what i was doing at the moment you know and i really mean that i really believe that i'm never trying to step on anybody's toes or something but i've learned that when i try to put any kind of restrictor plate on what i'm doing it works too well 
I just stay restricted mm-hmm. and then I don't, I don't break free to really do some interesting things or make some interesting moves. Um, so. you, you won one of the first Maggie awards we, uh, mm-hmm. offered for, I believe, uh, most destruction to the back wall. <laughs> I think that was it. Something like that. I, I have, have a, it at home. I have, <laughs> I have a, a great memory from a few years back of, of, I forget what show you were in. It's probably Chet Watkins show, but you just putting your fist right through the, Wall. Yeah, and then uh, like I was house managing the next day, and like first thing at the beginning of the shift was you with a giant bucket of spackle <laughs> trying up to fix them. It's like that's earn my keep. That's the spirit of apologizing after the fact. I think, it, and it really is. I really do feel that level of accountability. Like uh, um, I didn't mean for that to happen. Yeah, um, I did it out of instinct, and I I I didn't think the, the door was like one of those hollow plywood door so it, was, it wasn't it was like i really door. yeah but if i did it then i better show up the next day and fix it and not leave it and be like fucking look at that hole in the door man that's me man yeah. <laughs> like that's not what i want yeah uh so yeah I, I try to carry that like towards that kind of model towards what i do like go let it fly out there and then um you know hopefully if there's something that needs to be fixed, <laughs> try not to break anything. But if there's something that needs to be fixed, fix it. Tell you like some of my um, insecurities about improvising. You know, just so I think that there's like the part of you that's like, all right, what are my dreams? Right. And, and I, I think like as often as not, your like dreams for yourself can like fuck with you pretty badly. Mm-hmm it's like hard to separate like are these honest sincere dreams yeah. or are these internalizing other people's expectations right. and, and for you yeah or am yeah. i staying true to my 19 year old dreams right. but they don't fit my life anymore right and then i think that there's equally there is like an organic there's a real you you know and and, and you got to like learn how to like expand your consciousness and become more aware of the signals that the real you is using to communicate with you. And I do think that improv exercises the real you in that sense of like the idiotic shit that spontaneously is bubbling out of your mouth when there's no audience to receive it and no Mm -hmm. point to it. Yeah. That's the stuff that you harness as an improviser to have those private moments in front of people. And I think that the, for me, like the test of like, okay, this is speaking to something that's organic about me, that there's like a need for this to be, to be exercised or whatever. The test for that is that you do get to this tipping point where it's like, I can't wait to go back and do this again. I can't wait to go back and have all eyes on me while I do whatever it is that's putting a smile on my face today. It, because there's no profit to be had from this, there's no gain we've learned the hard way. There's no gain to, you know what I mean? Like the only thing that's left is this thing of, it gives you the, it's a place to come back to, to kind of, um, have those like periodic moments where you, you, you actually feel yourself really there and like giving away what you have to give away. If that makes sense. Totally. I think, I think that the, the, the whole, journey and and what i've kind of taken out of this like very stereotypical midlife crisis moment is we all want to be our most authentic selves and we put so many um 
again, so many restrictions on that based on the circumstances we're in. I'm at work. I behave like this. Uh, I hang out with friends. I behave like this. Uh, with my wife, this is more appropriate. Uh, in an improv show, this is what I need to do. Um, when really we want to kind of carry the same core light around into any one of those circumstances and be like, this is who I am. I am continually growing and evolving and learning, but this is who I am and I'm okay with it. I hope you are too. If you're not, there's not much I can do beyond, again, apologize for any like known infractions or whatever. But if you just don't like me because we don't have good chemistry with each other, that's okay too. Um, and, and that's kind of what improv exercises for me is like, I have to, I do have to kind of fear the judgment of an audience or something or say he was good or he was bad. Uh, I liked him or I didn't, you know, and, and there's something about kind of going up and being like, I, I hope you do. But if you don't, I'm okay either way. I, I've done this, you know, enough to know that, um, it's something I enjoy doing and something I'm halfway decent at at certain moments. So, uh, my, again, my intent is not to disappoint you, but if that happens as an audience member, sorry. And you know, I'll be back next week. Like mm-hmm. there, there is something to that. Like, uh, I can only do what I can do. There, there's that. I'm, I'm not here to serve you a burger. You can't return this yeah. burger if it's not made to order. Yeah. It's, there's almost a way where it's like the audience is being invited to, to come witness something that would kind of it, it, like, I'm not doing it to perform this for you and for your yeah. Yelp review of this. We're going to do this over here. If you guys want, there's a whole bunch of seats I hope, like, yeah, next yeah. door that it, you right. can sit in. Right. We're going to do this. Right. I, I think that's kind of it. And it's like purest yeah. form is, is this thing of like, come watch us practice together. Yeah. Watch us be in practice of figuring out how to uncork our our kind of most spontaneous, most silly version of ourselves together and come watch us practice taking turns, uh, uh, opening those doors for each other. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And I hope that you enjoy it. But ultimately, this is not about the product for you to approve or disapprove. Ultimately, it's I hope you like this, but we're going to be doing this anyway. Yeah. And, and, and like, there's also an element that's needed to, in order for that to happen too. Like as, as you were describing that, I was thinking, yeah, and you also need, when you do that, you need the trust of your teammates and stuff. And like that, that also just doesn't happen in a vacuum. This like us doing it for us also requires, I've got to engage with you. I've got to offer you stuff. I've got to listen when you offer me stuff. We've got to go actively participate in this experience together. And then the people watching might, might have more, to take from it afterwards, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, it, there's a, there could, there's a potential arrogance to being like, hey, we're going to go uh, jam over here. If you guys want to hang out, it's cool. And instead of like, Hey, go watch this kind of cool thing that we, that we learned how to do with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it turns out kind of fun. Um, not always, but you know, more often than not, because we've done it for a long time and, and we know, we, we know how to do it yeah. to some degree. Yeah. So here's my insecurity with this stuff. Going back to the program that you and Anthony were both in for people who were clearly smart, but just not trying hard enough. Yeah. There's an article going around Facebook this week from uh, the Atlantic about why writing is so hard. And uh, this person puts up the theory that the, they think writing is, or, or why, why writers procrastinate so much. Mm-hmm. And the theory goes, writers procrastinate so much, 
because the, the people who tend to procrastinate a lot tended to ace English classes when they were in school. English class and writing came easy to them. Mm-hmm. And so they developed this habit early on of never having to learn how to like try harder, mm-hmm. just instant satisfaction. Yeah. And so the pressure of having like deadline or the pressure of like having to do a rewrite or whatever it is, they just haven't cultivated the habit of confronting when it's not coming easy. And so you do everything in the world other than deal with it until the pressure becomes so intense that you have no choice but to say, fuck it, I got to do this right now and not think about it. I think that's fairly true. I think improv attracts a lot of people who would have been in the program with you and Anthony. Oh yeah. I, I think improv attracts a lot of people who are, who are obviously drawn to being creative, but also there's a lot of obviously different characters within this, but people fill archetypes pretty well of like bohemian lifestyles and, and, and like, I don't know where I'm going with this, but that, yeah, it does draw a certain type of person who maybe rebels a little bit against some of the systemic stuff out there. I think that's that's kind of a fair thing for me to say. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that means in terms of like their motivation or their drive or their what they need in order to be successful. But I can definitely identify with the idea of something coming easy and then becoming challenging. I just read a book. I forget what the title of it was, but all about the psychology of this, about uh, people who like to learn for the sake of learning and people who uh, kind of let their ego do more of it and say, well, if I'm not inherently good at it, it's not something I'm supposed to learn. Not, yeah, I guess not. What's the point, but also it's not, it wasn't meant to be right. If, uh, if we were meant to fly. Right. Yeah. So, um, and how, you know, really the right attitude, and this is something I'm rediscovering too, is like, you got to be learning all the time. Yeah. You, you you have to continually like just accept that there's so much out there to learn yeah. that the practice of it, just the practice of learning is important for human beings. I couldn't agree more. I, you know, going back to this idea from before, just about like the value of things, like it, There's, it's inescapable that we're moving into a robot-driven future, mm-hmm. right? Like our economy is going to not be, make any sense in the very near future. Everybody says more, more, more all the time. I'm like, how is there, there – eventually there's no more, more. Exactly. And, and, and also like more of what? Exactly. Yeah. What, what do you need more of? And I, so I think a lot of that is this thing of like undigested values. You don't right. actually know. It's just this – fear of losing or, you know, whatever. But like we're moving into robot central yep. really soon. And then, and then what? I think the worst case scenario view of it is this kind of like Nazi view that like, we're going to choose like the, the best 10% of people and everyone else is going to be left to, to die. But I don't think that that's true. I think that the future is a future where we're going to have to learn how to focus on our relationships and we're going to have to learn to focus on on um, realizing that learning itself is an open-ended experience that goes continuously. Like everything, I was just reading this. You ever read uh, uh, Awareness Through Movement? No. It's great. It's the Feldenkrais method of movement and it's, it's like how to sit and how to stand and shit. It's great. I recommend it. Okay. He makes the point in the book that... Uh, 
Um, we, we learn just enough to be like useful mm -hmm. to society and then no more than that. Yeah. And so most of us, uh, um, stop just the moment where it's like we, we get just enough and our entire lives never go beyond just enough. And we get used to that and kind of vaguely sense that like, Oh, I have this like yearning. I know that there's this stuff inside of me that's undeveloped and I don't know what it is. And I'm kind of too dumb to know what to do about it. Cause mm -hmm. I don't even have a language to articulate it, but I know I've been cheated of something somehow. Yeah. Right. I think that like, you know, to be optimistic, the, what the future has in store is realizing that the way we've been educated, the economic models we live by, our entire sense of like what is value communally, what is important to us, and what is the role of each individual in that system, that's all going to fall apart as robots take all the work from us. So now we have to really reevaluate what's actually valuable. And I think that that comes down to basically if they're trying to cut it from a, from a public school program, that's the future of what we should be focusing on. How do I better understand you? How do I better express myself so that we have a communication together? How can I open myself up to be more generous and more intimate with people? How can I better learn to stand up for myself among people? How do I strengthen these relationships? And how do I keep myself more and more open and learning more and more shit and, and finding my purpose, not by having accomplished status, but by pursuing my purpose? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, to me, it makes perfect and total sense. And I think that I hope that we're all, we are all moving more and more in that direction of putting real focus and energy on those things that we know to be important. That's why the, you know, what's going on in the world today and all the lying and all the, all the misinformation and, and manipulation that occurs. It's just so, I think we all feel this to some degree. It's just so unnecessary. There's so much better ways to use our time and our energy and our focus to, to really make this experience better. I think it comes down to, do you want to do that together? You want to understand that we all will do better if we help each other as opposed to compete with each other. I think there's this idea that the competition is what drives us forward. That if I, if I get a benchmark set for me and I try to exceed that, that that's, and the next person tries to exceed me, that that's how we're making progress. But I don't, I don't think we're making progress. I think that, I think that a lot of this stuff is fake that we value. And, and I, I've driven um, billionaires for a long time and I know what they're concerned with and it's all about keeping it mm -hmm. and keeping control of it. And, and then ultimately passing it along to their, to their family um, lines. But, uh, they were never, not all of them, but most of them were not happy. Yeah, and I know that how cliche that is, but it, they were they were very fearful about dumb things, you know, traffic when their private plane was waiting for them. They weren't even going to miss a flight. They just didn't want to suffer traffic. And and when I see you know focus and 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 energy being placed on things like that i go there's so much stuff there's people who don't have clean water like we gotta there, there's no reason that anybody in the world should not have access to clean water now am i gonna fix that no but are there more things i could do to contribute to helping that i'm sure uh and but, and, and other things yeah. a thousand other things too. Well, I, I'm, I'm gonna regret saying this because it's so it whatever but like i think in a small way one of the things you learn about as an improviser and this goes back to Armando. I remember Armando teaching this in class that if you can relax 
then the people around you will relax. Mm -hmm. If you can be comfortable being yourself, you're going to make the people around you being comfortable being themselves. It, it, you may not be able to, as a single person, address these problems, right. but in small ways on a day-to-day basis, by just learning how to like own your shit a little more yeah. and be cool with it, uh, I, I do believe you start to kind of relax the people around you too who are you know, living in some pretty severe chronic tension. And, and tension, yeah. tension makes you shitty to other people. Oh like the worst and 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 i don't know how i am perceived like like i said like what you think of me is none of my business but i know that a general perception throughout my life is you uh now that i know you you're an okay guy uh you're you're even like fun and affable but i when i first met you i thought you hated my guts Mm -hmm. because simply i'm just hanging back and observing Mm -hmm. that was my learning model as a kid was like hang back figure out what's going on and then jump in once you know the rules and you know all the players and who's who and who to stay away from and who to gravitate towards. So, but what I've come to realize throughout my life is that people take that for arrogance. Mm -hmm. They say he is quietly judging me over there. And, and I guess it's true because I am judging, but it's not in an, in a nefarious way or like, look at this one. It's like, what do you do? Okay. You kind of behave like, like I'm just quietly watching, but I, I understand that again, some of it's unfair too. Like I think I heard uh, Rob Riggle say this or something that like when you're a, a, a jockey kind of guy, it, you have the same kind of uh, labels sort of pre put on you mm-hmm. that that may or may not apply. But like he's a big stocky guy, and I think he wants to hurt me. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't want to hurt you just because my body is just because my BMI is a little high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just. But I understand it's in conjunction with how I view the world and how I participate and that, that my um, quiet observation can be taken for aloof. Well, um, quiet freaks people out. Yeah. Yeah. But it's how I knew how to – my brothers were wild. I was much more like I'm going to not say a word and figure out what's going on, here, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to whatever moment might have been happening in, in a family or an event or whatever. Um, and that's always been my wiring. Um, and then, you know, some of it, it about improvising is about being able to let it out or having had my fill of being quiet mm-hmm. and, and kind of exploding away from that. You, I want to talk about your drawings. <laughs> the work is growing, Lewis. It is. They're getting really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, so what started you drawing? I was at this play date with uh, one of Jack's friends and his dad, who is this, um, uh, he makes documentaries. Um, he was just flipping through his phone. He had all these really crazy drawings and paintings. And uh, I was like, you did that? And he was like, yeah. And I said, wow, that's amazing. I never knew. He's like, yeah, a couple of years ago I started, I read this book. Um, I think it's called drawing from the right side of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just started at it and, this is what I've come to. And I was like, wow, you've got a real talent for that. And he's like, no, anybody can do it. I said, no, you know, all the typical back and forth that you would have about this conversation. And then like a couple, a uh, couple days later, I was sitting around with nothing to do. And I just sketched like my living room just to see if I could do it accurately to get everything in the right proportions. And 
I was like, oh, that's not as terrible as I thought. And then I tried to face and that was not as terrible as I thought. And then I also figured out that it's something that my brain is naturally drawn to do. Like to sit again, just sit quietly for like three or four hours and focus on this, this shading or this lip or this whatever is something that I, I want to do. And then it's also about what I said before about the idea of learning and thinking that, there is this thing that you are either inherently good at or inherently not, but it cannot be learned. Oh, wait a minute. It can, mm-hmm. it can be learned. Oh, and if you apply practical work ethic to it, you get better at it and the results actually get a little bit better too. Oh, okay. I am relearning that learning is not over mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. at, you know, 41 years old and that it's important to do for the rest of my life. I have forgotten that since I graduated college, it was like, I did my learning now I'm in my professional adult life, and that's about making money and making progress, having accumulating things uh, and, and awards and titles, uh, and it's not. It actually, it, 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 attaching, attaching those ends to learning, and you learn, you learn to attach those ends really early because you, you, you learn to hook up the desire to learn with a, a pleasing whatever authority figure or whatever task or whatever goal has to be on. And it gives you a really stunted perspective on it so that you can't yeah. wait to get out of college so you can stop learning and apply this shit so that you can make your money or whatever. Right. When in fact, to, to like wrap it back into like this like search for your real authentic self or whatever, I think your real authentic self is not a thing so much as the kind of the capacity to continue to learn new shit and make new connections. Like you, you, you feel yourself as really being there It more. It's, it's not like, Oh, that's me. It's more of this, Oh, this kind of quiet, invisible part that I just kind of feel yeah. like I'm really here. And for me, I feel that when things are connecting for me, when I'm developing a new skill or I'm reading all these books and it's coming together and it's giving me a point of view about things that I'd never thought about before. And it's that when you're forming these new connections that you have this sense of like, Oh, this is how I exercise. This is how I get in touch with who I really am. Mm-hmm. This is how I find that person is by exercising what that person is, mm-hmm. which is just the capacity to keep on adapting yourself as you go through your life. Yeah. And I think the other thing in there is that um, the idea that like I've had this meal before or I've seen this movie before. It's like, well, then go make one right. or go make a new, right. you know, buy a tandoori oven you, and have the tikka masala yeah. tonight. Like, you know, there's, there is that idea of like, if it, if it's boring and it's been done before, then it's up to you to figure out how to do the new and don't be so constricted by your own ideas. Like, I really like what you said too, like, is this me or is this my 19 year old self that Mm -hmm. wants this? And it's really hard to distinguish sometimes. Like I set out to do this almost 17 years ago and I'm still doing it with limited sort of validation or results. Should I still continue to do it? You know, it, there, you get into this, like, who decided to do this? The guy 17 years ago or the guy today? Mm-hmm. Am I beholden to do this now because I've done it for a long time and I've set up a certain series of expectations about how it should be or what I should have by now? Or do I do it because I want to do it? Um, and, and again, a lot of this, the, the, the work I'm trying to do in life and stuff is about distinguishing between the ego and the spirit. Who's in? Who's trying to get this done right now? Is it me, the fearful, like frontal lobe self? If that's even where the ego lives, I don't even know. But like, is it that 
mechanical part of me that's scared of looking like an idiot or scared, like, who are you to be trying to draw, man? Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of, they're, you think they're good? They're not really good. Like, I, I, I'm, I was just talking to Ed and I want to develop this show called The Last Show I Ever Do. Cause it's kind of the point I'm at where like, I don't know how much more I'm going to do. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying like I'm quitting tomorrow or whatever, but I just really, I'm at a point where I don't know how much more I'm going to do. And if I don't do any more than, than the next whatever period of time, I'd like to get out my thoughts that I haven't up to now. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of it is like, (laughs) is that, that idea of my authentic self or, um, you know, what's important and why and, and, and what it is that's led me to be in the, in this space where again, who's, who's in charge? Is it the guy 17 years ago or is it the guy today and who needs what and how do we, how do we take care of ourselves in the best way possible? Well, that goes back to my insecurity about, uh, uh, those of us who could coast through a class and never had to try. Yeah. Because you get that satisfaction from improv and before you do get to like exercise yourself among other people. I think sometimes it's easy to get carried away and suddenly have 10 years go by. Oh yeah. And periodically it's worth asking the question if tonight show were my last performance, I never improvise again. What would I want to be remembered by? What yeah. would I want people to take from it? Yeah. And you don't ask yourself that question because you kind of don't think, you just think of it as like, I come back again next week and I right. keep on. Yeah. It's a little bit lazy and you don't have to articulate for yourself. What do I, what do I, what's actually important to me? What yeah. do I really, what do I really think is funny or really think is fucked up or really think is something that's not put on a stage that you should look at and yeah. see? And am I brave enough to be willing to be judged for that or have that not go the way I'd like it to ultimately, yeah. or there's all that that's factored into there too. Yeah. Um, but there's that, that idea of like, um, like why that show came to mind is because there's so many of these voices in your head that are, that are trying to whisper things to you about your worth, about your, like, you shouldn't be drawn, man. It's kind of, kind of hacky, you know what I mean? Like that voice where where does that guy come from and why is he allowed to be there uh and and to have to battle against it is a hard thing and so i think we all carry around some i'm not talking about <laughs> diagnosed schizophrenia here i'm just talking about like the different facets of a personality sure. or a, a viewpoint um and and the multiple selves that exist that are trying to take care of different needs and wants at the same time spirit wants to be nurtured and, and to have these experiences just for the joy of them. The ego wants to be taken care of and to look cool and to look, uh, admirable and, you know, and to not be touchable, to be kind of like Teflon. And it, it's it, none of them work in conjunction. And the spirit is the one that I'm trying to focus on and just be like, just be okay where you're at and just do what you do. And, and, and then everything will work out the way it's supposed to. Um, but why is it so? Why is there so much of a battle between like I just want to draw? Why the fuck are you telling me not to draw? Stupid voice! Mm-hmm. Like you know, like uh, it seems also unnecessary. But it's just part of the part of my human experience, at least. There's a um, I, was, I was just reading about this like last night. 
Turn on the TV, Lewis. I watched a fair amount. I just finished <laughs> People vs. O.J. Simpson. Have you seen it? Stop reading so many stupid books. Yes, I love the People vs. O.J. Simpson. Uh, in a cast that's made up of amazing actors. I mean, every performance in that is unbelievable. Oh, no, wait. This is the this is the uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. one? Yeah. No, I was talking about the... the uh, ESPN whatever, one? The ESPN one. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Oh, see? So we can talk about it. Yeah. Either are the best. They're, yeah. The, the ESPN one's unbelievable. If you haven't seen it, you got to see it. It's yeah. it, un, really unbelievable. It, it really uh, a, a brilliant look at all sides of what was going on yes. throughout that time. Yes. And but the, the Cuba Gooding Jr. one, I did not see. Oh, Christian, you got to watch it. Okay. If, if for no other reason, John Travolta as Robert Shapiro. <laughs> It's the performance of his life. It's unbelievable. He's so good, man. <laughs> and everybody in that is really good. Uh, Sarah Paulson is amazing. Yeah. Uh, uh, the guy who plays Chris Darden is like heartbreaking. Everybody's really good. But but it's Travolta's best performance ever. Awesome. Fucking anyway. What the hell was I going to say? It doesn't make a difference. <laughs> think just, it. just watch it. Just watch it. That's all I want to say about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, one final thing, just because it's, it's still in my mind. I, I think that you do sometimes kind of like measure yourself up against, I, I know I feel this for myself. I, I'm afraid to, to sometimes do that weird private thing for fear that like anyone's going to find this entertaining or care about it. So mm-hmm. you kind of measure yourself up against the statistical average of improv. You kind of do the kind of like middle ground of like, play an effective scene, play an effective game, do what everyone else is doing, kind of conform to it. And then like, you know, when I'm being really honest with myself, I, I, I like backtrack and look at like how I got here. And it's like, you know, through this process of like wanting to be a filmmaker and loving this mm-hmm. like core of like 1970s films and look back at these like 1970s films where like, people were real fucking weird in these movies. Yeah. You look at these like 1970s yeah. movies and the acting's amazing, the directing's amazing, but they're fucking weird and they don't, a lot of them don't even work, but you kind of appreciate them even more for not working, for just making the attempt to do something a little bit more personal and a little bit more interesting. And it's like, oh man, that's the fire under my ass. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the fight to keep in mind. That's the reason to do it is to like actually have something to say. At the end of the day, leave your mark. I think everybody wants to like sets out with the goal of, of having an impact. That's one of, of quality and you know, that, yeah, everybody's got whatever particular fire it is burning under their ass. Nobody sets out to suck. Yeah. Nobody sets out to be like, I, all I want is to just work these club gigs and to just be, I don't care what kind of comedy. Everybody has a version of what they want to do or what's important to them. And, and for me, it's kind of similar too. like, I was influenced by all this seventies, film and, and 80s film and tv and stuff and and these particular actors who like they really they just really could do things to an amazing level of reality that i i find again like how do you get up and have and do that when it's like and uh cameras rolling and uh we can see all the stuff in the background and craft services is back there but we have this little set right over here and the two cameras are here and blah 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 and then you have to go be like a a really emotional human being. That's not an easy thing to do. Like that's, that's a tremendous talent. And so that's kind of what I'm drawn to about uh, performing or like the idea of how it could be important or impactful um, is if you do it well in and of itself, it's, it's a, uh, it's a good parlor trick. Like it's a, it's a, it's something that not everybody is able to do. Um, And, 
and it also like I don't know, it just rings with me for whatever reason. And so I I follow that instinct. Christian Powell, this has been a fabulous Lewis, conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks man. for being here. Man. Nice to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. Uh, you can see Christian every week with the Armando Diaz experience, Saturdays at 7.30. Anything else you want to plug? That's it for me, buddy. All right, man. Thanks again. And thank you all for listening. Thank you to a man named Evan Ford Barden. He knows why. Thank you to Ed Herbstman for being our executive producer and also, also a father figure in many ways. And thank you to all of you. <laughs> if you enjoyed the uh, show uh, mention us on social media uh, it does something I don't know but yeah. it's good for everyone uh, thanks everyone thanks Christian thanks Lee. goodbye bye you've been listening to the Magnet Podcast This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.